welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Olaine Eaton, and today I'm going to be talking to Steve Kemper about his new book, entitled A Splendid Savage, The Restless Life of Frederick Russell Burnham. Hi, Steve. Um, listeners of New Books in African Studies, Islamic Studies, and or Religion may recognize you from your previous book, Labyrinth of Kingdoms, but I'd like to welcome you to New Books and Biography, where we're, of course, going to be discussing your new book, A Splendid Savage, which is such a great title, by the way. Um, I wonder if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself. Well, I've been a, a freelance journalist for more than 30 years now and mostly spent my career reporting. Um, but these last two books have been popular history. So I took a turn for, um, I don't know if it's the better or for the worse, but it is definitely towards history. And I've enjoyed it very much. Mm-hmm. Um, so we biographers wind up spending a lot of time with the people we're writing about. And I was wondering, how did you first hear about Frederick Russell Burnham and what drew you to him as a biographical subject? I first heard about him when I was in researching a story about hyenas for Smithsonian Magazine. And I was doing research about big game hunters' attitudes towards hyenas and came across Frederick Courtney Salou. You may know him. He was an explorer and hunter in South Africa, very well known. Even I knew about him. And he said that the, the man who knew more woodcraft than anyone he'd ever seen was the famous American scout, Frederick Russell Burnham. I'd never heard of Burnham, and so the name stuck in my brain and um, wouldn't leave. And he kept tapping me on the shoulder and tapping me. And in fact, um, I wrote another book before I wrote about Burnham, but he wouldn't go away. So then I started looking into him, and um, hence the book. And I cannot find the original source. (laughs) I can't find that comment by Salou. I've looked everywhere for it, but I didn't even bother writing it down because I wasn't interested in him at the moment, but he wouldn't leave. They do tend to haunt us, I think. Mm. <laughs> so what drew you to him as a, as a subject beyond that? Was there anything specific um, about the story well, that particularly appealed to you? Yeah, I mean, at first it was just the incredible adventure um, of his life. It, it seemed beyond belief, the things that he did, um, the, the number of times he escaped death, all the, the people that he knew. Um, and, you know, as a, as a boy growing up in America, you... you Cowboys and Indians and scouts and mountain men, they're part of your fantasy life. And so there was that part of it. It was sort of a, a return to boyhood in some ways. But then, of course, you start to look into people, and it's never quite what the myth suggests or the outline suggests. And Burnham got more and more interesting the more I looked into him. He wasn't this cartoon um, boy's adventure hero. He was. Uh, he had a lot of complicated attitudes about many things. He had many failures and rejections, and yet he kept going mm-hmm. until he finally reached his dream. So what were your most helpful sources when you were researching? Well, there, there are his papers um, are held at Yale and at Stanford here in the States, and they're quite a, quite a long shelf of those. He, he and his all of his relatives were prolific letter writers. So um, the correspondence was terrific, but that didn't begin until he went to Africa and he started writing letters home. And his wife started letting, writing letters home and back and forth. The first 25 years of his life, um, I relied heavily on his two memoirs, uh, which are usually reliable, but not always. And then very heavily on contextual um, material so that I could at least place Burnham into situations and into uh, historical circumstances uh, that he would have 
experienced. And I'm clear about this. I'm, I don't make anything up. I'm a, a journalist to the core. I I'm, have an abhorrence of um, creativity <laughs> in place of in, in place of journalism. So um, that was the trickiest part of writing the book. After after I got into the the African sections, there was a whole lot more primary material to work with. Mm-hmm. So for listeners who have no idea who we're talking about, could you give us an overview of who Frederick Russell Burnham was? Sure. He was um, he was born on the Minnesota frontier, 1861, and um, survived a Sioux raid, uh, the Sioux War that started there when he was 15 months old when his mother put him into a, a green corn shock as the Indians were about to burn down the homestead. The family then moved to California, um, which was... Uh, had just was pretty freshly um, over the, the Mexican-American War, so it was very, very heavily Mexican and Spanish at that time. And the family moved to the very, very small pueblo uh, called Los Angeles. And there, Frederick's father died, and his mother and his younger brother went back to the Midwest to be with her family. But Frederick, at age 12, said, "No, I'm staying here," and he did. And uh, he went to work for Western Union uh, as a rider delivering telegrams, and then started working as a hunter for mining camps. Um, eventually, he ended up in Arizona, which was the wildest of the, the Wild West in those days. It was sort of the last place to be, uh, quote, civilized. It was the last state allowed into the to the Union of the United States, in fact, 1912, because it was considered too wild and woolly to be, to be allowed in until then. Um, he fought the Apaches. He, was, he, learned, he learned scouting from, from some old frontiersmen. He was a prospector, and then he decided to go to South Africa and participate in Cecil Rhodes's dream of a a new Anglo colony um, in in what became Rhodesia. Became heavily involved there. Do you want me to keep doing this, or should yeah. I? Yeah, that's fine. Uh, yeah. Okay. He got involved in the uh, the two native wars. As soon as he got there, um, the first Matabili War broke out, and so Burnham joined it as a scout and uh, became. Uh, a key player in what what's known as the Shangani Patrol or the Wilson Patrol. It's very famous in Rhodesian history, sort of like uh, the Alamo or Custer's Last Stand here in the States. He was one of three survivors of this uh, patrol that got massacred. Uh, and then he went um, back to England to uh, sell some of his mining interest. And while he was there, the second Matabili War broke out. He went back to Rhodesia and uh, became infamous and are famous, depending on your perspective, in that war because he killed uh, a native priest um, from the god of the god Amlimo, which um, helped p- perhaps to end the war, or also perhaps made it worse. It's a historical controversy. Then uh, he went to the Klondike for the gold rush. Um, um, he got a telegram while he was in the Klondike from Lord Roberts, who was the commander of British forces in South Africa. The Boer War had just broken out. The British were getting their um, their behinds handed to them by the Boers. And so Lord Roberts wrote to Barnum and said, please come be our chief of scouts. So he did. And over 100 missions behind enemy lines, wounded, um, got the DSO from Edward II. Uh, after that, he went to West Africa to the Gold Coast, and then to do mining expeditions, then to East Africa to the uh, East Africa Protectorate, now Kenya, to do more mining 
um, explorations in remote places. And then he came back to America, um, went to Mexico, got involved in, in the Mexico and the Mexican Revolution, uh, then went back to the United States and got involved in oil. Um, <laughs> I mean, it just goes on yeah. and on and on. <laughs> Are you still there? Yes, yes, I am. Yes, I am. Um, so one thing this, that answer obviously highlights, but one thing I was struck by was um, how much he moved around, but also just how much he moved around at such a young age that he'd already lived on the Minnesota frontier in L.A. and in Iowa by, and Missouri and Kansas and Oklahoma by the time he was 15, um, which may not sound like a lot to us now, but by the, t- the standards of the time, that's a lot of mobility. Um, so you restlessness is in the title. It's his, his restless life, and that's a theme throughout. Where do you suspect that this came from, this restlessness, this need to that's constantly really, be on the go? A, it's a very good question. I, 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 I think he was just always looking for the next thing. He was driven by... Um, the idea of the prospect, and that's why he, he considered himself a prospector all his life, and he got various sorts of fevers, gold fever, um, frontier fever, as he would call it. He just he had to go where he thought he could make money and where it was new and where he was going to have a chance to influence what happened, um, and he liked to go to the places where history was, was being made, new history, mm-hmm. new nations, new frontiers. Um, plus the fact he just he he couldn't sit still. So uh, I don't know if those those things were rationalizations for him to leave. I don't think so. He really does did seem to be driven by these twin things, and it's it's um, I think it's pretty American mm-hmm. I, idealism and economic interests. Um, they seem to go hand in hand, and they influence each other. You also mentioned in the book that he was a great reader. Do you think that had anything to do with it, reading adventure stories as a kid um, and then sort of following that up with a life of adventure? Yeah, he did read a lot of dime store novels when he was a kid in, in Minnesota, and I'm sure that influenced his ideas about the West and the kind of life he wanted. Mm-hmm. Although there were a lot of Indians around when he was growing up in Minnesota, too. It was it was still the I – mean, it wasn't the – the edge of the frontier, but it was still very undeveloped and, and a frontier-like. So he also had a wife throughout much of this, um, who he met when he was 15, is that right? Yeah, uh, he, he met Blanche Blick, who became his wife um, in, in Iowa. He returned to Iowa from California for for less than a year when his uncles uh, shamed him into coming home and getting some education because he was from an educated family. His father had two degrees and became a missionary to the Indians um, with all that education in Minnesota. So he came back to Iowa for one year to get some high schooling and uh, couldn't stand it and left uh, very quickly. But he met Blanche there, and during the years of wondering after that, um, they must have stayed in touch. There are no letters that survive, but he did go visit her once or twice. And um, he, he... asked her to marry him, and her father said, you can't marry her until you can support a wife. And so that's when he got serious about prospecting and discovered his first gold mine and got wealthy enough to, to marry Blanche. Um, but she was amazing, too. She went with him everywhere. She, she supported his dreams of Africa. She liked frontiers, um, mostly. Um, and it was it was a great love story, even though they spent a lot of time apart because he was always on the move, trying to make money and working in the military and so on. But um, 
it's a, it's an amazing story. Their their letters are very touching. They they loved each other very much, and that's clear. Um, where did his interest in Africa come from? Because I think that was that was emerged quite early and was referenced in one of as part of the attraction of her for him was that she also was supportive of his dreams of going to Africa when they were still quite young. Where did that come from? That interest in Africa. Well, according to Burnham, he he. Uh, uh, a teenager who was babysitting him in Minnesota read him a book um, about some boys in the Orange Free State, and that ignited his desire to see Africa someday. And then as he uh, got older and became an adult, he began reading about Cecil Rhodes and the discovery uh, of gold in the Rand and the, the diamonds in the Kimberley and that what Rhodes was trying to do there. And that made him um, decide, I'd, I'd like to go and be- become part of this new nation that's being built in Africa by these hardy frontier people. Maybe they can use someone like me. And that's why he went. Plus the U.S., he felt the West was shrinking and getting civilized and the opportunities were diminishing. It was the Gilded Age in America, at the age of robber barons, and he felt like the game was rigged in the United States uh, because the banks and the wealthy uh, business people had everything locked up, and so opportunities were shrinking for people like Burnham. So what did it involve going to Africa then? What was the journey like? Huh. Well, of course, he was going from the very edge of America in California. He had to go all the way across the United States. Then he had to take, um, that was by rail, of course, then by boat to London. And then he went across Europe because they wanted to see Europe, which did not impress him. <laughs> then they went down uh, to, to um, Cairo, then down through the Red Sea and along the east coast of Africa. It was a tremendously long trip, and that was just the beginning. Once they got to the, to the bottom of Africa, then they had to get a wagon and mules and make a very long overland trip to the colony. It wasn't even a colony yet. It wasn't even called Rhodesia yet. It was it was the wilderness. So there were really no roads. Um, it was cutting through the, through the bush and following game trails to get to these two forts that had been built by Rhodes' company in what became Rhodesia. And he went with his wife and his son, correct? Yeah, they were with them. They, they loved it. They thought it was a great adventure. And um, at least at first... Burnham was very keen on it. He never expected to come back to the United States. He was very certain he would never return. Blanche pretty quickly started missing her family and trying to convince them to come to Africa, the New Eden, you know, this paradise that they had found. Um, And a couple of them did come. Burnham paid the way for um, a couple of her brothers and sister to come, and even her father. And uh, they were not nearly as impressed by Africa (laughs) as... Frederick was. They all ended up leaving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the image of them arriving in Victoria and Blanche immediately setting up her sewing machine. I thought that was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she didn't expect to buy any any new dresses for five years, uh, but she also wrote home to um, to her mother-in-law, "Please send the ostrich feather that I left because I'm going to need it." So it was really you know, she was she could handle a, a shotgun or a rifle. But she also talks about dancing through her chiffon dresses, and um, she was a, a woman, and yet a frontier woman, a very interesting mixture. Yeah. I also like the detail of how in, in begging relatives to come visit, she would leave out the fact that hyenas would walk through the camp and stuff and um, play up the, the positive things. 
leave out, <laughs> leave out the frightening frontier stuff. <laughs> yeah. Definitely a PR release, not, not yes. really the truth. <laughs> Uh, so we talked about gaps earlier, and this is kind of in a, a similar but slightly adjacent vein. Uh, I'm curious to know how you handle what you refer to as the subject's flawed complexity, so the contradictions, and, and for example, in this case, views that were wild, widely held at the time but were racist, um, but also more generally the pieces of a character that seem paradoxical or don't match up. What is your method of dealing with those? Oh, um, a lot of distress and <laughs> trying to figure out how I'm going to write about this. And um, it is to 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 us these attitudes are repugnant, and uh, to try to understand them because you know what 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 we have to do as historians um, is to try to be fair to people and to understand why they thought the way they did, and not condemn them for it, but just to recreate it so that the reader might have some clue about what these people were really like and what drove them rather than judging them. The, the judgment doesn't, doesn't help anything. So it was delicate to write about, about the issues of um, especially race. But um, I learned, as it's not surprising I knew it, but I didn't understand quite the depth of it, that these attitudes were pervasive. And it wasn't just... It wasn't just the ignorant who had these attitudes. It was everybody. It was Theodore Roosevelt. It was Churchill. As I mentioned in the book, it was even Gandhi, who, who spent 20 years in South Africa. He arrived in South Africa the same year as Burnham and was convinced that the blacks were an inferior race and that Indians uh, should not be confused with these, with these black people. Um, so to try to be fair to them um, and, and yet also to be clear about their attitudes was a challenge. And I didn't want to uh, turn this into a condemnation of these people as imperialist racists. I don't think that helps. I don't think that gives us any understanding of history. It just makes us feel good. But I also didn't want to downplay it and become an apologist for these sorts of attitudes either. So to, to, to walk on that line is, is delicate, but um very interesting to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it works really well in the book. Um, so Thank how did you. how did he come to be chief of scouts for the British as an American? Well, uh, he, as I mentioned, he was um, a scout in the two Matabele Wars, and in one of the in the second one, he was the uh, the main the main scout for General Carrington, who was the uh, the commander of the the British forces for that war. And so when the British had all these setbacks at the beginning of the Boer War, most of them were caused by lack of military intelligence. They, the British did very little reconnaissance. They didn't send out scouts. They had sort of dropped scouting as an important aspect of, of military strategy. I think they thought it was de class A. They also had been very obligingly um, – Oh, the natives in, in other wars tended to uh, attack them in massed groups that the British could then mow down. And the Boers were not like that. The Boers were guerrilla fighters. They hid. They used camouflage. They melted away. Um, they wouldn't fight in ranks like noble British soldiers. So consequently, um, the British were getting creamed everywhere. And Carrington said to Lord Roberts, who was re- who replaced General Buller, because things were going so badly, Lord Roberts said, we need some intelligence. And Carrington said, the best person I know as a scout is this American guy from the Matabele War, but I think he's in the Klondike. Maybe we can reach him. And the British were sending out, by the way, uh, 
uh, invitations to every place that they could think of who uh, might know how to do scouting. So there were the Gillies in Scotland. There were the people with the, who were taking care of estates in England. They were getting recruited. Please come help us if you know how to live outdoors and track. Maybe you can come give us some valuable information about what the Boers are doing. Anyway, Lord Roberts sent this telegram to Skagway, Alaska, and it found Burnham. And Burnham got on a boat two hours after he got that telegram with his wife and son and went to London and then down to, to Africa to become chief of scouts. It's a very unusual invitation, I, mm-hmm. is, is, what, is the point that you're making, I agree. And uh, they also let him keep the rank of major as an American after the war, which is also unusual. Mm-hmm. You mentioned, I think there's a chapter with um, the word celebrity in the title of it. And I was just curious, how how famous was he during his life? Would 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 he have been in the papers quite regularly? Would people kind of have not been hearing about him every day like we do now? But would you have been kept aware of, of where he was and what he was doing? Um, or was he more just, he, would, he was in the UK and became sort of the toast of the town for that season? Well, he he was famous by the time he got back to England because of the exploits during the war. Um, The Boer War was the first media war. There were uh, well over 100 correspondents there from papers, uh, especially in Britain and the United States. And they reported on every skirmish battle exploit. Um, And so Burnham was was great copy because he tended to do things that were flashy, that were good news for people at home because uh, he was doing things that that, uh, that were successful <laughs> instead of failures, and they were dashing. So uh, a lot of people wrote about him. Um, and by the time he got back to, to Britain, he was he was well known. Uh, he was considered one of the figures of the war whose name everyone knew. Uh, and he was known in, in the U.S. as well and in Australia, of course. So he did get feted and he did get quoted and he did get asked to speak um, because he was a war hero. Um, so, you know, the, the famous American scout, it became it's, it's almost a catchphrase if you, when you read the papers of the Times and the, the accounts of the war and so on. It's uh, phrase just seemed to be stamped on his forehead after that war. Mm-hmm. He did seem to cheat death an almost extravagant number of times. Yeah, he really should not have lived. Uh, he he should not have survived as many things as many times as he did. Mm-hmm. He was you know he was wounded. He was crushed by his horse. He uh, you know I I really don't understand. Of course, a lot of it is skill. In fact, most of it is skill um, that he knew how to evade and he knew how to um, react instantaneously. That's the other thing that he was so good at. Um, scouts had to be able to s- look at something and make often an instantaneous decision about an action so that he uh, at one point was confronted by more sentries at night, uh, halt, and he said, he said, friends, you know, friends, and that stopped him just long enough for him to turn his horse and, and to dash off as they sh- started shooting at him. That's the sort of thing. I, w- I mean, it, the, the mindset of that where you're always uh, a spring ready to go to do something and to change direction is a very interesting psychological state, I think, to be in. 
But um, anyway, I'm going off on a tangent there. No, no. Um, I wonder if you could talk a bit about the importation of the African game animals, that plan that they had. I thought that was such an interesting story and such an interesting idea. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the peculiar subchapters of Burnham's life. He he decided uh, that there was there was a so-called meat crisis in the United States um, in the early 1900s because so many immigrants were pouring into the country and coming into cities and they were leaving the, um, the, the farm areas of the United States and going into cities looking for factory jobs. And uh, they all were hungry. They all wanted to eat meat. And the, the uh, prairies were starting to get, um, you know, losing their, their ability to support crops and, and animals because they had been abused for so many years. So one of the schemes that was cooked up by, um, by Burnham and a couple of other people was let's import African game animals, put them on our planes, and they can uh, have a dual purpose. It'll be fun to hunt them, and then they'll supply meat at the same time. And there were actually congressional hearings about this, and Burnham testified before Congress they were going to bring in hippos, they were going to eat the, the water hyacinths in uh, Louisiana because the that was an imported plant from Japan that was clogging up the waterways of Louisiana and that was hurting the economy there. They were going to put zebras and elephants and, uh, no, not elephants. I don't think it was elephants, but zebras, giraffes, um, great bustards, all sorts of things um, were going to be <laughs> scattered across the United States so that people could shoot them and eat them. Um, it never happened, but it's a, it's a very interesting, and, and it was earnest. It was earnest, and there were headlines, stories about it, a tasty dick dick to be added to menus and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the hippo idea in particular, because of the plant, that seemed that seemed quite sensible, actually, like a good solution. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah so um, the answer to this is probably quite obvious by now, but um, how did he inspire the founding of the Boy Scouts? Well, that again goes back to Africa. Um, Robert... Um, Baden-Powell was, was an officer in the Second Matabele War, and he met Burnham and was, was astonished by what Burnham could decipher by looking at some tracks or some disturbed landscape um, or a cloud of dust. And he had this idea, um, Baden-Powell did, that, the, that woodcraft was dying out in Britain because Britain was also being industrialized and urbanized. And he was afraid that young boys were, were losing contact with nature. And he wanted to, to – and he was convinced that, that through contact with nature, boys could uh, be instilled with certain values that made them better, made the country stronger, self-reliance, discipline, woodcraft. Burnham knew all these things and totally agreed with Baden-Powell, so they had a lot of discussions about it. And Burnham said, I think your idea for an organization of young boys who would learn these things is fantastic, and I'll support you in any way I can. And by the way, you should get rid of your bright red uniform and uh, because that's a, it's a target for marksmen. And uh, Burnham-Powell also adopted for the Boy Scouts um, Burnham's distinctive stiff-brimmed Stetson hat and his neckerchief, which became the two identifiers for the Boy Scouts that Burnham, that Baden Powell would uh, go on to found. The two men were lifelong, lifelong correspondents and friends, and um, Baden Powell was constantly uh, trying to get more information from Burnham about 
uh, would craft secrets and techniques and what, what, what should I teach these boys? And uh, in fact, Burnham got a mountain in California in the San Gabriel Mountains named Mount Baden-Powell while uh, Baden-Powell was still alive. And after Burnham died, the mountain next to it was named Mount Burnham, and they still are. So what do you see as Burnham's legacy? Well, I'm not sure he has a legacy because he's not very well known. Um, but uh, what, I, what I hope people will, will see when they read the book or think about some of the qualities that Burnham that Burnham epitomizes, uh, you know, they're 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 really great. The the, the discipline, the self discipline, the self reliance, the the idea that failure is is a momentary um, aberration and tomorrow is going to be better. The idea that the frontier that's starting over is always possible, and that um, that you're never quite defeated until you're dead. And the idea that you can influence your time by uh, by taking an active role in, in events. Burnham was not cynical. Uh, he was cynical about politics, but he was not cynical about his ability to change things. And a lot of these, these qualities have sort of, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're sort of flat. They're hard to find now. And uh, they're worth recovering, some of these frontier virtues. So as a writer, I feel like this is such an unfair question, but what or who are you planning on writing about next? You're right. That's a terrible question. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> because I don't have an answer. If I had an answer, I'd be very enthusiastic and glad you asked, um, but I don't. So uh, it's uh, it's one of those periods where I'm you know looking around and hoping somebody taps me on the shoulder again and won't go away. Okay, well then to end on a, a slightly more positive note, what's your favorite, your personal favorite anecdote about Burnham? Oh boy, that's a hard one personal favorite you stumped me on that one i don't i can't say that i have there's just too many there's so many of them that I, you know for this is not even an anecdote exactly but i love that i, I do love that he, when he went back to iowa for one year to try to become educated he just couldn't stand this churchy bland place where no fun was allowed and everything was either religion or money and he said the hell with it. And he got into a canoe one night and just took off down the Mississippi. Uh, I just love that. He was, he was 15 and, um, well, and that he hadn't even really done anything yet, but that's a, that's, that's him in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. That's a great story. (laughs) You've been listening to an interview with Steve Kemper about his new book, a splendid savage, the restless life of Frederick Russell Burnham. This is new books and biography. And I'm Olaine Eaton. Thanks for listening.